Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we welcome back to our show Congressman Jim McGovern. Congressman, thank you so much at this, I think, fraught time for our country. We really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. I would like to know more about what I read in the Daily Hampshire Gazette this morning, which I didn't realize. Let me quote to you two sentences, please. Representative Patrick McHenry, Republican of North Carolina, is acting as Speaker Pro Tem until a new speaker is chosen Quote, right now the House is inoperable, Representative George McGovern, George McGovern, Jim McGovern said, adding that the only power of the Speaker pro tem is the ability to oversee a process to elect a next speaker. Really? That's all he can do? Does that mean that the House actually can't do anything? What if we have a national emergency? Talk to us. This actually is really potentially very serious. Talk yeah, to us, we, Congressman. We, yeah, well, we, we can't do anything. That's that's an accurate assessment of the situation. Uh, uh, he can't, uh, the acting speaker pro tem cannot bring legislation to the floor. We cannot debate legislation on the floor. He can't refer bills to committees. He can't do anything. His job is to oversee the election of the next Speaker of the House. And, you know, th- we put this rule in, by the way, uh, after September 11th, because then we people began discussing seriously what would happen if there was a terrorist attack and the speaker uh, was incapacitated or, or killed. What, what do you do? And this idea came up uh, that whoever the speaker is sh- should submit a list of several names uh, to the clerk's office. It would be secret because we didn't want, we didn't want terrorists to know who they were. And uh, in the uh, eventuality of the speaker was, uh, was killed, then, the first person on that list would be would, would, would be acting speaker pro tem and oversee the election of a new speaker. And everybody thought that would be really quick because everybody would behave like adults and, you know, national. Uh, it was a national emergency. We'd all come together and elect an, another speaker and government could continue. Nobody anticipated the catastrophe would be the Republicans self-destructing. Uh, and so so now um you know, they will meet on Tuesday to decide who they want to nominate uh, as their candidate for speaker. And then we will have a vote. Hopefully they will get behind somebody and that vote will be quick and we can then, you know, move on. Uh, but uh, if this happened, you know, before the government shut down, before we had the continuing resolution, the government would have shut down and there wouldn't have been a thing we could do about it. Congressman McGovern, there are three names, two most prominently, who are being names being bandied about as the potential next Speaker of the House that the Republicans, who the Republicans will elect as Speaker. One is Jim Jordan. The other is Steve Scalise. Uh, They are both really conservative. They are, well, not, they are not much different ideologically from Kevin McCarthy. And I want to pose this question, and only a bit tongue-in-cheek. Are you going to look back, may the Democrats, or might the Democrats look back at this and say, we're going to miss the good old days of Kevin McCarthy? Well, they weren't good old days. Uh, And, you know, I don't know how many times I've I've been on your show, and we've talked about how abortion rights are under attack, how uh, 
protections for the LGBTQ community under attack or about deep cuts that their appropriations bills are making in Meals on Wheels or WIC or Head Start. I go right down the list. I mean, are there attack on uh, anything to protect our environment? Uh, are there denial of climate change? Are there, are there allegiance to Trump? I mean, the bottom line is Kevin McCarthy presided over the most reactionary right-wing Congress I've ever seen, more so than Newt Gingrich, uh, quite frankly. And, um, and you know, he was uh, you know, a, a puppet of Trump. I mean, I think he lost, you know, any respect that I have for him when he, uh, after January 6th, when he went to Mar-a-Lago um, after promising that he would get behind a bipartisan uh, commission to look into the uh, events of January 6th, he came back and, you know, um, and, and changed his mind um, and said, no, I'm not, you know, and, and, it, and it wasn't a big deal. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, he basically, you know, got on one knee and you know, genuflected in front of Trump, and he's been that way ever since. So there's no trust there. Um, and the legislation that, that is being brought to the House floor, uh, none of it uh, includes any Democratic input. I mean, it's just awful. So th- this is this was a, he, he, there's no difference between him or anybody else on the right wing. Uh, and he had an opportunity to come and, and reach out to us and see whether we can come to some sort of an agreement uh, to get some votes, and he chose not to. In fact, last Saturday, when Democrats overwhelmingly, every Democrat voted to open the government, except one, um, and 90 Republicans voted no. If we didn't do that, the government would have been shut down. And the next day, Sunday, he's on all the talk shows blaming Democrats, saying Democrats wanted to shut the government down yesterday. Democrats saved not only our country that day in terms of keeping the government open, but we saved him. Uh, and his his response was to bash Democrats. So, I mean, there's no, there, there's no, um, you know, there's no trust uh, and there's no respect. And, and so, you know, the Republicans lit themselves on, on, on fire and, uh, and um, the, the notion that we that we should, you know, come with the fire hose to to put it out is 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 just is ridiculous. I mean, uh, I want to vote for Hakeem Jeffries for speaker. That's who I'm going to vote for. Congressman, that said, Kevin McCarthy, as the speaker, did actually corral enough Republican votes so that the continuing resolution to keep the government operating passed. I'm not at all sure that if Jim Jordan had been Speaker of the House or Steve Scalise had been Speaker of the House, that they would have done that. Is there well, really no well, difference? Yeah, I, I, I don't see a difference at all. I don't see a difference at all. I mean, Steve Scalise voted to keep the government open. I don't remember how Jim Jordan voted. Uh, but the bottom line is that uh, I think Steve Scalise I, I would have been more open to talking with Democrats than Kevin McCarthy. Uh, but um, but I I don't I mean I'm, I'm going to tell you the, the the Republican conference is wholly owned by Trump. There are no moderates anymore. There's no there's nothing there's nothing mildly moderate about uh, about the Republicans right now. Um, and uh, and just look at the bills we've been voting on. I mean, there you know it, it makes you cringe when you look at how you know how right wing they are. I mean, it's it's just it's scary. Uh, I, my question, Congressman, this is Buzz. Is, is it better to have a speakerless a house, uh, or somebody who's 
uh, got no power or somebody who, who is actually bad. That is, we have a rudderless Congress right now. Kevin McCarthy could have made, notwithstanding what you said before, he yeah. did everything to retain his position. He gave up everything. I wonder if the, if he could have negotiated with the Democrats something that would have kept him in power, which is all he really wanted to do, and benefited the country. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was an opportunity for, for some sort of uh, a deal. I, I really do. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that he never was open to it. Um, uh, I, I don't know whether he just didn't believe that he'd lose eight Republicans or, or whether, you know, I mean, he was delusional. But, I mean, there, were, there was an opportunity. But I think he, he you know, he, he, he was more worried about, you know, the Freedom Caucus than he was about, you know, accurately counting votes. And, look, he agreed to this crazy rule. This is one of the things he gave to the Freedom Caucus, you know, that, uh, that any one person could move to vacate the chair uh, as many times as they wanted. Um, and, and it was ridiculous at the time. You know, he was saying, well, how about let's have 50 members have to sign a petition and then we can vacate, you could move to vacate a chair. And then went down to 25 and then down to 10, then down to five and then down to one. And so he created this chaos. I mean, he, he, he enabled this chaos. So one of the things that has to happen is that rule needs to be changed. Um, and I don't know whether any Republican running for speaker could actually say that because those, you know, those Freedom Caucus people will not vote for them. Uh, if that's the case. But, I mean, we, we need to get rules back in place that allow the House to run in an orderly and effective and, you know, fashion. Congressman McGovern, the continuing resolution keeps the government functioning for another, oh, give or take, uh, six weeks. Yep. But then it all comes to a head again. What's going to happen? Is the government really going to be at risk of shutting down again shortly? Well, we'll, we'll see how the next speaker handles uh, the negotiations. Um, uh, you know, but the answer to that is is yes. I mean, depending on where Republicans are, they still control the House. I mean, I'm assuming they will have a speaker next week, and whoever that person is, um, you know, will will be will determine. You know whether or not we're back to where we were last Saturday, or whether or not we have a more uh, orderly process in negotiating our our, our differences. Uh, you know, with 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 the Senate. I mean, look, the the the, the GOP right now is ungovernable, um, and you know the the reality is it's unclear if anyone can end their civil war, even if they get a speaker. Uh, I mean, they, they they've never been interested in governing. Their 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 forte is chaos and you know, throwing Molotov cocktails and, you know, causing, you know, people to get, you know, all upset. I mean, that, that, that's, what, that's, what, that's what they do well. They don't govern well, and this is an example of that. Uh, and the, the sad thing is that the next election is still a ways away. Uh, but uh, because I think people are sick of this. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, you know, uh, they, we, we need to see some adults in the room uh, emerge in the on the Republican side. And look, we—I I mean, I—I've I, I, always worked with Republicans. I worked across the aisle. I mean, I—I I, I believe that you know, you, that especially when things are so tight, that compromise is a necessity. Uh, but if you're working with people who don't want to compromise, you know, who don't give a damn about what you say or what you represent, you know, then it's like then we're supposed to go bail them out. Um, 
you know, and, 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 and put somebody in place who is going to continue these horrific policies. And I mean, they, they have an impeachment uh, inquiry against Biden. I mean, every day, listen to their speeches talking about how they want a national abortion ban. I mean, uh, continue to deny that climate change is real. And it's, 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 they're really in a, in a, in a, in a very, very sad state right now. Uh, And again, if uh, whoever the next speaker is, I hope that that person will be a speaker for the whole house. Well, I don't mean to be negative about that hope, Congressman, but it seems to me it's a forlorn hope. There's no if there's no difference between uh, McCarthy and Jordan and Scalise. How is this possibly going to be done? It seems to me we're careening towards the same cliff that we were just a few weeks ago or a week ago. Right. So ideologically, there's no difference between them. The, the question is whether or not, in terms of being a person, there is a difference between them. And one of the things that uh, Democrats and Republicans all agreed uh, about with regard to McCarthy was that he was untrustworthy. Again, this is the guy who went to, who told us he was going to support a bipartisan commission of, uh, to look into the events of January 6th, and he went to, um, um, and he and he went to uh, uh, Mar-a-Lago and changed his tune. Uh, he leads the election deniers uh, in Congress, you know. So I mean, uh, but but everything he promises you, he he breaks his word. He had a budget deal with President Biden. Uh, you know, they shook hands on the deal. Mitch McConnell was there. Mitch McConnell agrees there was a deal. Uh, Mitch McConnell is honoring the deal. Uh, Kevin McCarthy did not honor the deal. So he, the, 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 his, his word meant nothing. But the issue is whether or not, um, if it's Steve Scalise, for example, whether or not uh, you know he will be somebody who will keep his word, and whether he'll be somebody who will who understands that if you want to get legislation done, you're going to have to work with Democrats. So it may not be a hundred percent of what he wants ideologically, uh, but nonetheless, in the spirit of governing, he will govern. I mean, you know, you know, Newt Gingrich did shut the government down, but during his tenure, uh, you know, he was forced to allow things to go forward um, that, quite frankly, he would rail against. So the bottom line is we, 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 need, we need a speaker who understands that shutting the lights off is not an option. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern. We really appreciate your time, particularly at this very busy, busy uh, time for you. Congressman, thanks so very much for your time and insights today. Well, hopefully, thank you, and hopefully the next time we talk, all will be well. <laughs> we can hope. All right. Thanks. Bye. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. You love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. 
Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. 1.3 million meals provided to over 8,500 people in Franklin and Hampshire counties. The Amherst Survival Center, making sure our neighbors have the food they need. Join the Amherst Survival Center's Hike for Hunger. Sign up now, set a fundraising goal, and come October, hit the trails. Ask friends and family to support your goal and support the Amherst Survival Center's food and nutrition programs. Hike Mount Toby, explore Buffum Falls, hike wherever you like. Bring your people, bring your pup. Sign up at Hike for Hunger at the Amherst Survival Center website. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 1015-1400-WHMP. And this is, well, we don't call it crime and punishment, but it is the idea with attorney John Pucci, who is the former U.S. attorney for the District of, Western District of Massachusetts here in Springfield and a criminal defense lawyer specializing in federal criminal defense. He is with us again, and we wanted him here today because we want to bring us all up to date on the criminal charges against Donald Trump. And in particular, we wanted John with us because we would like to know more about the about-to-begin criminal trials in Georgia against some of the defendants, the co-defendants with Donald Trump, which I assume has enormous implications for Trump himself. John Pucci, help us out. So... It is a fascinating situation where under Georgia law, people that are charged with crimes are entitled to a speedy trial um, within, I think it's two or three months of the charges. And if they don't waive their right to a speedy trial, then they go to trial. And in fact, on October 23rd, this later this month, two of the of the 19 defendants that have been charged in Georgia, two important and critical defendants, will be going on trial on essentially all the charges in Georgia, which have to do with election fraud, and and a mirror image of all the charges that are in play uh, in the federal indictment for the January 6th insurrection. So this trial of two defendants will encompass all the charges 
that will be out, played out in later trials, including the charges against Donald Trump. And importantly, this trial will be televised. And that's very important because it'll allow the public access, direct access to what the evidence is, what witnesses say, and although it'll be more complicated than the George Floyd trial, which was televised, uh, people will be able to watch this and see for themselves how witnesses have testified, what the evidence is, and how the defenses that Trump himself will be later asserting in Georgia and in the federal criminal case in Washington having to do with the insurrection. So it's a clear and plain preview of the Georgia and the January 6th case in federal court against Donald Trump. Well, and in that regard, it's a bellwether for how the tri that trial's going to go, how a jury's going to see it, how it'll be organized. And it's only two defendants, which is very important here, because if you put all 19 defendants into the courtroom to try this case, you have a very complex setting with 19 defense teams all chattering away all, in, all, all getting involved in the Donnybrook of the trial. Here you have two defendants, each will have a single lawyer who can speak for them uh, generally, and it'll be an organized trial and a presentation. And let's hope that the Georgia prosecutor's offices office is up to it. One quick point. With regard to the speedy trial demand, we should note that that is a Georgia law, a Georgia rule. Uh, there is also a federal and, and state uh, constitutional right to a speedy trial, but this speedy trial right in Georgia actually operates much more quickly than the constitutional guarantee. Is that right? That's right. It can still be waived so that the Georgia trial, even against these two defendants, could have been put off for many months or a number of months. But in this case, these defendants and their Sidney Powell, who's a lawyer, and uh, Kenneth Chesborough, who was a key player in the election fraud scheme, are the two defendants, central defendants in the federal case, as well as this case, they refused to agree to waive the state uh, Speedy Trial Act, and that's why they're gonna go to trial on October 23rd. Why did they wanna do that? What's in it for them? They're not doing it to help out the prosecution, they're doing it to try to save themselves. Why does this make tactical sense for them? Well, one thing, well, I, I, have, I don't know exactly, but I have two ideas having been defended federal criminal cases for a long time. One is that the, the Commonwealth, the prosecutors uh, uh, may not be fully prepared. Uh, it's a rush job for them, perhaps, to put their case together. Um, and uh, as such, uh, there's an advantage to the defense because the prosecution has to go first in this criminal trial in Georgia, and it may be they're not fully prepared, and it may be that the defendants understand that, know that, and want to take advantage of it. There's another tactical reason, which is it may be a jury listens to all the evidence in this case, and it may be the evidence is heavily, heavily weighted to culpability of Donald Trump, and it may be there are some jurors who conclude listening, gee, the person who was really behind all this and some of the other people that are behind all, all of this alleged criminal activity aren't being charged. They're not in court. If we find them guilty, they won't be punished. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. We don't know. 
but we're not comfortable. I'm not comfortable, a juror may think, as a human being, finding these two people guilty of such a very large and sprawling fraud. And I think there's an argument to that. And it may affect some people in the jury. And remember, all they need is one juror saying, I don't like the structure of this. I want to see all of people here. I think Trump was behind everything here. He was the prime mover of this scheme. He's not here. I'm not going to find these people guilty if I can't find him guilty. I would like your appraisal of what televising the trial means and whether you've had any experience with a televised trial. And I ask that question because I am getting to something I am not really asking for your, your expertise on, uh, although I'm happy to hear your opinion, which is, could this trial, the televised, uh, the tele- televising of it, change the political dynamic, change what the country learns and knows and believes about Donald Trump? Well, the answer, I think the answer to that is yes, because people choose their news sources based on their own political leanings. For instance, Bill, you might not read the Wall Street Journal for every page all day. Buzz not, might not read it. I might not, not even read it all day, every day, every page, but I read probably the New York Times, maybe, maybe the Gazette. Um, but you choose your news source, and those news sources themselves steer the stories. But if you're watching, and so people are captive to their own belief systems as reflected in what they read. But television isn't a belief system. People who watch television can see for themselves what it is these people, who these people are. Do you believe them? Do you trust them? Are they telling the truth? Are they being exposed as liars? Are they being exposed in some way to all the credibility issues that come in play that human beings use every day when judging the credibility of things they see themselves. And they're not, the television isn't a biased, you know, mode of communication. So I think that there's something to it that's quite significant and quite important and may draw people in the center, people who may be undecided about what they think about this, to look at it anew and make their, and and come to their own conclusions rather than just confirming you know, from their belief system in their sources of news, what they think. Attorney John Pucci, this is Buzz. And I want to go back to what you were talking about, about whether jurors are going to be, uh, whether it's going to be prominent that Trump and the other alleged co-conspirators are not present when these two are tried. Does the fact that these two are alleged to have been architects of the legal rationalization for election denying uh, on the part of Trump you think that's going to be the focus of the, for the reasons you stated, that's going to be what the prosecution focuses on? That's a very significant part of this. If, if, if they, jurors can be convinced that they, act, they actually believe that the election was fixed and they believed it was a fraudulent election and that Trump really won, then, you know, it makes a profound difference on how you look at all the evidence in this case. So, Yes, I mean, they're very, let me just say, they're very different defendants. Uh, Sidney Powell is a lawyer. Uh, she actually was a federal prosecutor at one time. I think she even wrote a book with Bill's uh, buddy from the last show. Uh, so <laughs> it's at all one Bill's time, fault. <laughs> well, most, most things are, right? So, <laughs> so uh, you know, she is, uh, you know, she, this, she claimed there was a trove of evidence to prove that Trump had won. That is going to be, that is what she said publicly over and over and over again. 
She coordinated efforts to infiltrate a rural Georgia election office. All that's proven by emails. Um, but if her backstop for this is, I really did believe he won, that issue is going to be front and center, you know, in the trial as her defense. And if she takes the stands, which lawyers rarely do, but when they're defendants, they might, and says, I really believe that she's going to be subject to very intense cross-examination about, for instance, the fact that by the time she was insisting that the election was fixed, 60 different federal judges, every single federal judge, including Trump appointees, had said there's no evidence that there was any uh, uh, wrongdoing or any fraud in the election, and Biden won the election. Even Bill Barr, Trump's own uh, uh, somewhat ill-fated attorney general insisted that there was no election fraud in this case. She's going to have to defend that. So it's going to be a bellwether trial on that issue. And you can look at the results of this and say, this is how the bigger Georgia trial go is going to go. This is how the January 6th uh, 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 insurrection trial in federal court is going to go. And um, you can really, really draw on this conclusions, I think, or likelihoods, high likelihoods of a similar result in the larger cases. We're speaking with Attorney John Pucci. This is Crime and Punishment. We're going to talk more about Trump and his co-defendants in Georgia and in federal court for the crimes which they stand, for which they stand accused right after this. I have heard rumors all over town they say that you're planning to put me down All I'd like you to do Tell me that it isn't true More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Healey has signed a tax relief package that is designed to deliver $561 million in reductions to taxpayers and companies during the current fiscal year through a slew of credits and other measures. But the one thing that we know the most direct thing that government can do is to show that we get it, to show that we get it. And how do you show by you get it? By actually putting money back in people's pockets, to take some of that pain away, to cut taxes, and to deliver. The package will top $1 billion in tax relief by the 2027 fiscal year when fully phased in. The governor said she's thrilled to deliver on a promise to pass tax relief. Authorities said the baby of a pregnant woman who was shot in Holyoke following a fight on a downtown street was delivered at a hospital and died. The Hampton District Attorney's Office says the woman, who was not involved in the fight, was shot Wednesday while seated on a bus and taken to a hospital in critical condition. Her baby was delivered in need of emergency treatment but did not survive. Authorities say police responded to the shooting at 12.38 p.m. and believe three males were involved in the altercation. Former Amherst Superintendent Michael Morris is now working for the Westfield Public School Systems. Morris is the new Director of Human Resources and began this week. Morris left the Amherst School District after 23 years amid a Title IX investigation and multiple lawsuits. Partly to mostly sunny skies today with a high of 76 to 80. Clouds will increase tonight. Evening temperatures in the 60s, overnight lows of 52 to 58. Mostly cloudy on Friday with some showers and drizzle around, a high of 68 to 72. A steadier rain on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP.
Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka. Celebrate the Valley's proud Polish heritage with Polka Carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning Polka Carousel to the airwaves of the Valley. Playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel, WHMP. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that, no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Attorney John Pucci, former head of the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Springfield, Massachusetts, and a criminal defense lawyer specializing in federal criminal defense. John Pucci, I would like to get your opinion. We would like to get your opinion and have you share with our listeners, please, what we were talking about just a moment ago, which is what is going to happen with these proposed gag orders on Donald Trump? He's a candidate for president of the United States. He is, we'll put it in air quotes, legitimate, a legitimate candidate for president of the United States. He actually could win. Uh, and yet there are prosecutors saying, you can't say X, Y, or Z. He says, that's relevant to why they're going after me and why they're trying to destroy my presidential campaign. How is that going to get resolved? Judges keep making threats, but so far, they haven't amounted to much. It's unheard of that a defendant in a criminal case uh, criticizes and makes personal attacks against the judge who's going to sentence them. Shall we say the judge's staff that are part of the team that is going to be in charge of the proceeding? Uh, that's what's going on in New York now, and it's going on in the federal criminal case as well. Uh, and we know that because of the existence of uh, social media that Trump makes threats or implies violence against the prosecutors, all that's going on, you know, and 30 years ago, it didn't exist because there was no social media. And until recently, 
I don't recall ever a defendant ever in every in any federal criminal case actually making these kinds of very personal uh, allegations and accusations and attacking people uh, and and really implying that there should be threats and violence against them. I, I just never it's never happened as far as I know. Even in mob cases uh, with with dark murderous defendants, they don't want to be on the wrong side of the judge. And uh, and so what this has brings into place is the limits of what a federal a court a judge can do with regards to gagging somebody who is so outlandish in their accusations against the legitimacy of the entire system there's absolutely nothing wrong with trump saying i'm innocent and this is not a fair prosecution and it's all political but when he veers into the personal as to the judge the judge's clerk the race baiting that he does against the attorney general in New York, the threats against witnesses, all of that crosses a line that never is never crossed and has never been crossed in my experience in 40 years in this business. But maybe John Pucci, the reason, maybe the difference is because most defendants have, they're deterred by fear of the consequence of what they say. But in this case, we have somebody who spent an entire lifetime saying whatever he wants, whenever he wants, maybe what he needs is to be sanctioned for what he says. What do you think? Well, okay. So the issue of sanctions is is the problem. So what is the what is the appropriate sanction that's going to be effective? I mean, a, a careful. I mean, for, first of all, let me say Trump. Trump is a significant political candidate for the presidency of the United States. He is entitled to speak to how he thinks these prosecutions are wrong generally. Just as a matter of fact, he's got 49% of the Republican votes in, in, in New Hampshire, according to the latest polls. He is legit, quote unquote, legit Republican candidate for president and likely will be that candidate. He has a right as such under the First Amendment and to, to voice his opinions that these accusations are wrong. Okay, but, but when he crosses that line into threatening, the issue is what sanctions can a court bring? Now, people say he should be put in jail, but putting him in jail is, is only going to heighten the crisis. And I think it's the last conceivable thing that you could ever possibly think of. So if I were the judge, I would be thinking, you first should have a conference like they did in New York. It would be in chambers. You would be clear with his lawyers at the outset and with him personally that this has crossed the line. And you can issue a warning, a second warning. And you can start by doing things like you could impose a financial penalty. If you do this, I'm going to be in a place, Mr. Trump, where even though your fraudulent net worth uh, uh, it has been in play in this trial in New York, I'm going to start fining you substantial amounts of money if you cross this line again. And that may ring a bell to him further down the road. If he does it once, if he does it twice, you can keep turning the screw and increasing the fines on him. And he's a guy that that matters to. It matters. He's losing his New York businesses. He's knocked off the Forbes for, you know, billionaire list. And you can turn the screws financially. You could also put him in sort of house arrest. You could say you're locked down in Mar-a-Lago. The Secret Service agents can be there. You're precluded from using social media. But you're starting to get into a really extreme, extreme space because of his right to political speech. The idea, the last gasp, the last place he goes to jail for it, you know, maybe, maybe 
that happens if in fact somebody gets empowered or, or a group gets empowered and starts acting violently based on his public statements. You may have crossed that line. He may end up in jail. I think it's unlikely. We'll see. But it's a quandary for the judge, a big quandary. This has been Crime and Punishment with Attorney John Pucci. John, thanks so much for your time and your insights today. Really appreciate it. Listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op. Wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster. Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2. Only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. could be one word away from $1,000. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Listen each weekday for the $1,000 keyword at around 815, 1215, and 415. When you hear the keyword, just go to WHMP.com and enter it for a shot at $1,000. You have until midnight to enter the keyword of the day. It's a grand in the hand on WHMP. Complete rules and details on WHMP.com. You have a tree to prune? Rent a boom lift, a pole saw, a chipper, a log splitter, stump grinder, and to clean up, a mini loader. Whatever the job, chances are TJ's rents the tools and equipment to make it easier, safer, and cheaper. What projects do you want to tackle? Rent the right tools and equipment at TJ's. We'll show you how to use them. You'll get the hang of it in no time. TJ's Rental, Route 202 in South Hadley. Give us a call and fill up your propane tank while you're here. And this is our Have Faith segment. We are in the studio with the Reverend Andrea Avazian, who has with her and us today a very, very special guest who we want you to know about and whose event we tonight we want you to know about. Reverend Andrea Avazian, talk to us. I'm so happy to be here today with Buzz and with Bill and with my dear friend, mentor, guiding light, inspiration in my life, George Lakey. George Lakey has a new autobiography out. This is one of his books, one of his many, many books called Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice. And George has literally spent his 80-some years living a life committed to peace and justice, has trained tens and tens and tens of thousands of activists, 
young, middle-aged, and old in nonviolence, has spoken around the world, and has led a life where he has risked body and soul and psyche and health to promote peace and justice. He is my longtime friend. I've often said to people locally, many, many people know George Lakey, but I've often said George is to Philadelphia and the world what Francis Crow is to us in the Valley. He is our Francis Crow, and he's making a face next to me of what an honor and what a joy. The title of the book? Is Dancing with History, A Life for Peace and Justice by George Lakey. It is extraordinary. And there's a, there's a book talk tonight, a book's reading, a signing, a Q&A as well? There is. There's a book reading and signing tonight at the Edwards Church at 7 p.m. I am honored to be a respondent. George will talk, be talking about his life, movement building, organizing, and his books. Books will be for sale. Thank you, Broadside Bookstore. It's at Edwards Church tonight at 7. George, welcome. Delighted to be here and to be compared with Francis Crow. That's, uh, that's a very high honor indeed. A little taller. <laughs> yeah, uh, in, <laughs> I was increasingly taller as he grew older, right? <laughs> I'd like to know about the book. What in, why did you want to write this book at this time? Because this time is so hard on people. I've met so many anxious undergraduates, just really, really worried about their future, partly because of the political polarization that's going on, and partly because of the climate crises that are increasing. And I really wanted them to read about a life of someone who was through a lot of really dangerous stuff. Um, and I, I put myself in some very difficult situations, life-threatening sometimes, a, a knife was pulled on me a couple of times, and so on. And uh, because of polarization in the 60s, which I was very, very involved with, and, and uh, I really wanted to share, hey, you can have a life even though it is a life that is turbulent, that has a lot of unpredictability to it, and, and in which you know that there are forces that are really not on your side. You can still have a joyous and a good life, and I wanted to, I wanted to let people know that. Well, I'd like to know more about that, given <laughs> Trump and the potential for fascism Climate is certainly a crisis, but the potential for fascism in the United States is more real than I've ever seen it. Why are, why are you so optimistic? Research was a big, big factor. I was doing a book on the Nordic countries, like uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, and I was curious not only to describe in the book how their system works, but actually it's more democratic than we are, more egalitarian farther ahead on climate, just all kinds of ways they're superior over there in, in their economic system. But I also wanted to write about how they got there, and that's what really opened my eyes, because they got there by waging a struggle at the time of greatest polarization in modern times, greatest polarization in modern times. The Nazis were marching in all those, in all those countries, Sweden, Nazis, Denmark, 
Norway, Nazis marching. And at the same time, communists excitedly organizing for the dictatorship of the proletariat. I mean, a tremendous divisiveness going on. And it was also the period of their greatest progress. And I thought, George, you have it wrong. You think polarization always leads to hell. Yes, it can. It did in Germany. It did in, in Italy. But on the other hand, there are apparently things people have figured out that can take the, can use the energy of polarization actually to move forward. And that's what we need to capture. What? It's always darkest before the dawn? Scientifically, mm -hmm. that's wrong, but the yeah, idea... Yeah. idea. And, and it sounds too inevitable. No, no, no. I'm, my view is it depends a lot on us being smart. And the reason why things went to Nazis in Germany and Italy is because the movements on the left were dumb. The movements on the left did very, very poorly, and they almost gave the countries, in both cases, to the fascists. We don't have to make those same mistakes. If we learn from their mistakes and also learn from the brilliance of countries similarly polarized but who, that took things to a more just and a more peaceful direction, then we can do well. We can even learn from ourselves. The 1930s was no picnic. Uh, I have one quick question. This is Dan. Can you tell me what one or two of those mistakes that those left-wing groups made? What was it generally that they did wrong? Um, well, the, on the right, of course, the deal was violence, right? Provoke, provoke, provoke. So in both those, those countries, both in Germany and in Italy, the left made the mistake of arming against and doing counter-provocations and escalating an armed struggle. Well, that's, of course, extremely scary to the center. And it's the center, really, that both sides are after, right? Mm. They want more growth, more growth for their mass movements. Well, but the center was scared of both movements and therefore supported uh, authoritarian solutions, figuring, well, if we can't even walk down the street safely, you know, then, then we really, this is not okay. We have to go for more authoritarian solutions, forget about democracy, just let them have it. And that will happen here if we do that kind of thing. Uh, I could go into this at greater length, and that's what I plan to do at Edwards Church. <laughs> you know, George, I'm 72, and I've known you since my 20s. So I actually knew some of the stories between the covers of this book, Dancing with History. I knew some of them. And yet when I read this book, hanging on every word, and I did, your courage, your vision it is so inspiring, page after page after page of the campaigns you led, the blockades that you were a part of, the being on the Phoenix boat going to Vietnam, the working with Cesar Chavez and Bayard Rustin and over and over and over, the Willoughbys and over and over and over, the giants of the peace and justice movement over the last six decades. I was so deeply moved and of course, as a person of faith, I began thinking, and it's woven throughout your book, how your Quaker faith, your commitments to nonviolence, your belief that there is that of God in each person, your belief that wisdom and integrity grow from a silence, a shared corporate silence, I was so moved by how your faith motivated your activism and you stayed so true to it. Can you speak to that for a moment? 
Yes, I, I, it, it certainly is fundamental. You're absolutely right, and I haven't been shy about that. In fact, the current group that I'm involved with and that I get arrested with <laughs> is called Earthquaker Action Team, and we're focused on climate and learning a lot about how to become more effective in dealing with the climate crisis. But I learned so much, as Andrea, you suggest, I learned so much from people like Bayard Rustin and others who had gone before, right, and who had been had had, had knives pulled on them. I learned how to deal with the uh, imminence, you know, of violence by learning from people who had gone before. And I feel like, of course, that's my responsibility. Then I'm the old guy this time, so I get to share with others. Tonight is Dancing with History: A Life for Peace and Justice. A talk with R. George Lakey, Edwards Church, 7 p.m. We really look forward to seeing you there. It's going to be a wonderful talk and a lively discussion. Andrea Vazian, what does this event tonight mean to you? I am so happy to have George Lakey touched and changed my life. The event means I get to be with an enormously important, beautiful, tender, brilliant person to hear him again, to respond to his talk, which is a huge honor, and to say to the whole group, listen with the ears of your heart. We have a treasure in our midst and someone I love dearly. Tonight means the world to me. Dancing with History, A Life for, Pe- a life for Peace and Justice, the book talk, reading, signing, the Q&A, will be this evening at 7 o'clock at the Edwards Church on Main Street here in Northampton. George Lakey, an honor to have you back on the show. Andrea Vazian, thank you so much for bringing George Lakey to us today. We're gonna spread the love We're gonna spread it around We're all over the city now And way down in the Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. I grew up in a normal home in a normal town. All of a sudden, everything got crazy. I didn't talk to anybody about the way I was feeling. I was scared and I was alone. I started drinking. I just didn't want to deal with what was happening in my life. I knew about AA, but thought I was too young. I found out I was wrong. If you have a problem with your drinking, why don't you give AA a call? Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111. Northampton and WRSI HD2, Turner's Falls, WHMP.com. A Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. We begin this hour in Ukraine, where officials say at least 49 civilians including at least one child, have been killed in a Russian attack in eastern Kharkiv. Rockets hit a store and a cafe in the village of Rosa, where a spokesman for President Zelensky says victims had gathered for a commemorative ceremony. Zelensky is in Spain meeting with European leaders. 
Correspondent Cammie McCormick. Volodymyr Zelensky is rallying more support from Western allies, addressing the U.S. Congress's failure to approve more assistance. As for political storms, I'm confident in America. Today, President Biden is holding a national security meeting focused on Ukraine. He also said he will soon give a major speech on the importance of supporting Ukraine. The question of more U.S. aid to Ukraine is up in the air after House Speaker McCarthy was stripped of his leadership position this week. Reports of overcrowding, unsanitary conditions and violence at Georgia's Fulton County Jail will come into focus as a state Senate subcommittee announces it'll begin an investigation three months after the U.S. Justice Department launched its own probe. Senator Randy Robertson. A lot of times these problems are caused either by funding, management or in the court systems. And we'll be looking at all of these things. Six people have died in custody in Fulton County since the end of July. The Homeland Security Secretary is taking a surprising cue from the Trump presidential era and paving the way for construction of up to 20 additional miles of barriers at the southern border. CBS's Jared Hill. The about face by the Biden administration comes as a shock to environmental groups. The wall would run through public lands that are habitats of endangered species and plants. Secretary of State Blinken in Mexico today meeting with leaders there on the rise in migration, arms and fentanyl trafficking. The Nobel Prize in Literature was awarded this morning to the Norwegian author Jon Fosse for his innovative plays and prose which give voice to the unsayable. He's been compared to Henrik Gibson, Samuel Beckett, even the late Beatle George Harrison. Fosse says he's overwhelmed and grateful. New information on ADHD's impact on driving. Here's CBS's Michael George. Researchers at Columbia University say ADHD patients aged 65 and older were twice as likely to report traffic tickets and crashes. Although ADHD is often considered a childhood ailment, it can persist and affect people through adulthood. The Dow is down 11 points. S&P off 8. This is CBS News. If you need to hire, you need Indeed, because Indeed's all-in-one hiring solution helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Have you Googled yourself lately? Are there negative posts from an ex-employee or from a former client? Maybe an outdated news article or sensitive personal information about your family? Search engines don't always get it right. For right or wrong, it's your reputation on the line. That's where Reputation Defender by Norton comes in. One of the most trusted names in online reputation repair. Reputation Defender has been fixing people's search results for over 15 years. Their cutting-edge approaches help you to wipe away unwanted information in your search results. They also promote the good stuff so that it rises to the top, helping you put your best foot forward. Your good name is too valuable to leave to the whims of a Google algorithm. Take control with Reputation Defender. You can start by getting your free reputation report card at reputationdefender.com or call 800-401-6681 to speak to an expert. That's 800-401-6681. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Healey has signed a tax relief package that is designed to deliver $561 million in reductions to taxpayers and companies during the current fiscal year through a slew of credits and other measures. But the one thing that we know, the most direct thing that government can do is to show that we get it, to show that we get it. And how do you show by you get it? By actually putting money back in people's pockets, to take some of that pain away, to cut taxes, 
and to deliver. The package will top $1 billion in tax relief by the 2027 fiscal year when fully phased in. The governor said she's thrilled to deliver on a promise to pass tax relief. Authorities said the baby of a pregnant woman who was shot in Holyoke following a fight on a downtown street was delivered at a hospital and died. The Hampton District Attorney's Office says the woman, who was not involved in the fight, was shot Wednesday while seated on a bus and taken to a hospital in critical condition. Her baby was delivered in need of emergency treatment but did not survive. Authorities say police responded to the shooting at 12.38 p.m. and believe three males were involved in the altercation. Former Amherst Superintendent Michael Morris is now working for the Westfield Public School Systems. Morris is the new Director of Human Resources and began this week. Morris left the Amherst School District after 23 years amid a Title IX investigation and multiple lawsuits. Partly to mostly sunny skies today with a high of 76 to 80. Clouds will increase tonight. Evening temperatures in the 60s, overnight lows of 52 to 58. Mostly cloudy on Friday with some showers and drizzle around, a high of 68 to 72, a steadier rain on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. And I'm Bill Newman. And I am concerned. I was just reading an article, um, a Reuters article, about this year being on track to become the hottest year on record with a global mean temperature to date this year of 0.52 degrees Celsius higher than average. The European Union's uh, Copernicus Climate Change service said this on Thursday and chronicled it, and the more I read, uh, the more frightening it became, and who better to just make that little announcement uh, in front of than our own Brian Adams. Hello, Brian Adams. Hey, Buzz. Uh, that was sort of a buzz kill right there. Ooh. Um, yeah, ooh. No, uh, I, I couldn't help. I wanted to make sure oh, that I mentioned. It just seems like every year is the hottest year on record, and I think we had uh, record temperatures two days ago, was it? Three days ago for this time in October. It feels much more like summer the last few days than fall. But uh, tomorrow and the next day, the cold weather comes in. And when the weather drops, the leaves pop. So we're going to see some good color coming up. And what better place to experience color than to go into our wonderful hill towns? You can pass by Buzz's house in Ashfield. On your way to the Fall Festival On your way Ashfield. to the Fall Festival in Ashfield. You can also go to Waitley, uh, one of our wonderful uh, towns in the valley, not quite a hill town. And one of the sort of hidden gems in Waitley is the Ada and Archibald McLeish Field Station, which is run by Smith College. I bet most of our listeners do not know that Smith has this marvelous 250-acre field station um, in Waitley, and it's sort of up in the, in the high section of Waitley, and it's just beautiful there. And we are so fortunate today to have the director of the field station, Paul Wetzel, uh, join us. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for being here. Well, thank you. I want to start um, with tragedy. And tragedy. <laughs> tragedy, and something really, really tragic. 120 years ago, one out of every four trees in the Northeast, in fact, in the whole Eastern Seaboard just about, 
were American chestnut. Mm-hmm. It was just a vibrant tree of this marvelous, the, the wood was really strong and really hard, would last forever. The nut was edible by all sorts of wildlife, by people. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. <laughs> Um, and uh, and just just a just a remarkably important ecologically and, and to humans. 1904, a uh, Chinese chestnut comes to I believe the New York Botanical Gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, with it is a blight. The blight just devastates uh, American chestnut trees. Four uh, four billion trees, it's estimated, uh, in 50 years are just wiped out. Um, but there's been an incredible amount of work to restore American chestnut trees. And I had the great opportunity a few weeks ago to get a little ride in a golf cart with Paul Wetzel <laughs> around the McLeish Field Station looking at this remarkable stand of American chestnuts. So, Paul, let's begin the show by telling us what you've been doing with American chestnuts and whether it's working and whether there's hope for the future in bringing this remarkable tree sort of back to life. Okay. Well, there's always hope for the future. That's what we just have to keep going on that one. Um, so what we've been doing at the um, McLeish Field Station is we've had a what's called a seed orchard um, there, and that is part of a program with the American Chestnut Foundation. And so the foundation, there's a national office, and then there's also a um, chapter. There's a series of chapters, and so this is, so this seed orchard has. We've been working on or putting them in the seed orchard um, with the Massachusetts Rhode Island chapter of the American Chestnut Foundation, and that the purpose of the um, of the seed orchard is to is is sort of be the end result of a long um, process of traditional breeding of trees trying to, you take a chestnut, chestnut, uh, Chinese chestnut and you cross it with an American chestnut and then the offspring, you look to see, does it have resistance traits to the fungal blight? If it does, you keep going and you cross it again with, um, with an, an American to try to bring a greater percentage of American um, genes into the offspring. So the Chinese chestnut is blight resistant. The Chinese chestnut evolved with the with the blight. Uh, with the blight. The American chestnut did not. The American chestnut did not. And Chinese chestnuts are cousins to the American chestnut. So they're not exactly the same. Chinese chestnuts tend to be smaller trees. They tend to be 40 to 60 feet. They produce great nuts, and you could grow them here. Um, that would be fine. Some people do grow them. Um, and... Um, they also tend to be multi-stemmed. So what was here, the American chestnuts that were here before were large canopy-level trees, 110, 120 feet um, in their biggest, and um, they were single-stemmed trees. And that's what, that's what people who, are restoring, who want to restore the American chestnut, that's what their, their goal is, is that, that kind of a tree. And is this working, this, this high, hybridizing... American chestnuts with Chinese chestnuts is the result of blight-resistant tree. Yeah, well, this this process was started about forty-five years ago, and now it's not working. It turns out that it it turns out that blight resistance is actually um, associated with more than 
well, up to nine genes. It's known right now to be associated with that. And to try to get that, um, when you do a cross, to get that transfer of all those genes, um, that's, that's very difficult to do, and it hasn't been very successful. So there are, we planted 3,000 trees in that orchard, and this is just one orchard of many others, and um, we inoculate them. When they get to a certain age, we inoculate them with the blight, and we see, are you resistant or are you not? And it's, unfortunately, there haven't been any that are strongly resistant. Paul Wessel, is this fungal blight only targeting chestnuts, or is it a fungal blight like we hear about Dutch elm and a lot of other trees that are uh, imperiled as a result of blight? Is, is, is this uh, just for chestnuts, this blight? So far as I know, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a chestnut uh, targeted chestnut blight. And it's, it's naturalized now. You know, it's not going to go away. You can't, it sits in the soil. You can't really do anything about it. Um, and the thing you should know about this blight is it creates cankers on the stem. So that prevents water flow from going up from the roots into the rest of the tree. And it prevents photosynthesis from coming down from the leaves, um, um, and going into the roots, but it doesn't kill the tree per se. It kills everything above the canker. So that's why you can still find American chestnut sprouts um, in your yard or in the forest. So it's sort of tragic. I mean, they they grow to a certain height. The blight comes and girdles the tree, kills the tree. They stump sprout and back up they go to a certain height, but they never can produce chestnuts because they just don't get that big enough. Well, some of them will produce a few, Uh but you're right. They're what we call ecologically extinct. So it's been 40 years of a failed experiment. Um, What happens now? Is there, because people are obsessed with American chestnuts and we want to restore them, restore them. Um, Is there another, other options? Well, um, so there's been a, Yes, there's been a total reassessment in amongst the American um, Chestnut Foundation, and um, that assessment is going to take advantage of some um, genetically modified American chestnuts that were uh, developed in Syracuse University, and um, they inserted a wheat gene into the genome of the American chestnut. Whoa, whoa, a wheat gene, a wheat gene. into a chestnut tree. Wow. Right. And so, um, so that's, yeah. And um, that gave those American chestnuts some resistance. And so the plan now is, right now, those, those um, genetically modified organisms are in, uh, what do you call it? They, they've been... They've been quarantined. They've been growing outside to in special, you know, place to see if if it's okay to grow them and to release them into the environment. And so, that review period is not finished yet. And um, and so, when that review period is finished, and presumably you get the okay to use to um, put these organisms out into the environment, then you can. Um, then the idea is to take pollen from those genetically modified plants and start crossing it with the best trees in, in these seed orchards that are all over. Well, it's so interesting, this mm-hmm. uh, ambitious effort to restore the American chestnuts. And it's interesting that after 40 years, it's in a failed hybridization with the Chinese chestnuts, but now moving into 
genetically modified work with a wheat gene. It's so interesting. We're talking with Paul Wetzel. Paul is the manager at the Archibald and Ada McLeish Field Station in Waitley, which is a wonderful field station run by Smith College. Grounds are open to the public. People can hike the 250 acres. Can't use the building, but let's talk about the well, building. Brian, yeah, oh, I, you're going to do that. I just wanted to ask you, what is a field station? What, what is, is a, a field, field station? station? Paul, <laughs> tell us. Because it's sort of um, unique in that it's not just a science station, but it tries to blend the arts right. and sciences. Can you talk a little bit about what that's... What sure. That so it will be easier to understand if I tell you that traditionally field stations were usually... Um, set up by large universities, and um, they were to train science science students out in the field. That was, and usually they were only open in the summer. I'm thinking of like the one I went to at the University of Michigan, which is up um, at Pelston, the tip of the mitt. Um, you go in the summer, you go for two months, and you take field classes, whatever that might be, plant identification, moss identification, birding, you know, all sorts of things, ecology. And then um, and you stay there and you eat there, and there's, there's places f- for people to stay, and there's a, you know, um, a cafeteria and all that. Now, what, there are lots of other versions of field stations, and at McLeish, there are no places to stay. Um, there's no cafeteria because we're close enough to campus. No one would really stay there. And so, um, but, and we also, because it's a liberal arts college, we are sort of conceiving it of McLeish as a um, liberal arts field station. So we have recreational facilities for students there. We have, um, we have arts, you know, art projects, um, dances, sculpture um, projects there, and then, of course, science as well. And there's a laboratory there as well as a sort of all-purpose room. Is that right? There's a building that has, yeah, a laboratory in the loosest sense of the word. Like, uh-huh. it's pretty, it's it's not very sophisticated. Why is it named after uh, the Poet Laureate and Postmaster General Archibald but, McLeish um, and his wife? Okay, so the McLeishes never lived there. <laughs> but they lived in Conway. And the McLeishes were, um, bec- when Jill Kerr Conway, who was president of uh, Smith College in the 70s, when she came to be president, she uh, befriended, became friends with the McLeishes. And the McLeishes showed her around um, Western Massachusetts and, you know, just made her feel um, at home and that sort of thing. And so later, in her later years, when she wanted to leave a bequest to the to the college, um, she decided that she it was big enough that she could name something. And so she decided that to name the that property, which the college had bought in 1962, as a place to put a telescope, an observatory. So there's an there was an old observatory there. Um, she decided to name it after her friends, Ada and Archibald McLeish. We, I have got to get up there. Uh, maybe we'll go with you, Brian. Let's and do it. Learn something up to the let's, field station in Waitley, the McLeish Field Station. We're going to take a break, and we're going to be right back with Paul Wetzel and Brian Adams talking more about the field station, the McLeish Field Station. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire 
Jack Frost nipping at your nose. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Last summer, Whalen Insurance finally did what a lot of insurance agencies around New England had done long ago. We partnered with a call center to handle routine things like a change of address. It went okay, but we're not going to continue. We found out that no matter how simple or complicated the matter at hand, you prefer to talk to us. As one longtime Whalen Insurance client told me, the people at the call center are great, but they're not Amy. I like knowing I can call and talk to Amy every time. I guess I should have known. Local people and local service are what sets Whalen Insurance apart from those big 1-800 insurance companies. When you want a quote, when you need help with a claim, or anything else, just call. Or come to our office on King Street. Talk to Amy, or Kelly, or Mindy, or Valerie, or Lori. We tried the call center, you tried the call center, and we found out that you prefer talking to us. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. Call 586-1000. Go out to eat, save 30%. Get a guitar or take lessons, save 30%. Pork chops, rug cleaning, hypnotherapy, save 30%. The Shop 30 store. Full value gift certificates to local restaurants and merchants, plus tickets and events. Just click, print, and save 30% on the stuff you were going to buy anyway. The Shop 30 store. Open right now at whmp.com. Hello, this is Mother Nature speaking. Well, speaking through me. You can just let everything slide until next spring, but I'm not going to be happy. I know you're busy. We're all busy. That's why you call Beyond Landscape. They cut back the perennials, deadhead the flowers, clean up the leaves and compost them. Maybe the lawn needs feeding or the beds need weaning. Oh, you'll get to it? Oh, really? Listen to your mother. Take back your weekend. Call Beyond Landscape. Book a fall cleanup. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And with Brian Adams and Paul Wetzel. Paul Wetzel, who's the manager of the McLeish Field Station, run by Smith College in wonderful and lovely uh, Waitley, open to the public, 250 acres. The field station itself is not, but the grounds um, are. Paul, one of the really interesting things that um, I understand about the field station is the building, the Bechtel classroom building, is designed as a living building, and it's really sort of met, met this quote, I'm doing quotation marks here, living building challenge. Uh, it was a fifth certified living building in the world. Can you tell us what's unique about the building? What makes it so fascinating? So first, a little bit about the living building challenge. The living building challenge is an architectural challenge that, was, that says um, that... Instead of creating a building, putting a lot of energy, and I mean that broadly, into the materials and the construction of that building, and then essentially using energy throughout the life of its building to maintain it and, f and heat it and cool it and fix it, um, the idea is, is that we can design buildings that, yes, we put a lot of energy into them, but then they can... Uh, generate their own power, they can clean their own water, they can do these other th aspects that um, will help defer some of the energy that you'd normally have to, you know, use over the course of the maintenance of that building. So, um, and a lot of those things can, and we can make a building that is um, enjoyable to work in and 
um, uses materials that are not known to be extremely poisonous to the environment as they're made. You know, like an example is polyvinyl chloride, which is used in the insulation of wires and, and in sometimes in pipes and things. So, so what's unique about it is really the thoughtfulness of the design. That's, and the fact that it, t- it took this, the people who, the architects who, um, uh, who designed it, took the challenge of conforming to the living building challenge, you know, this architectural challenge. Took the challenge and were successful in having it certified as a living building. That's right. So one of the cool things is, one, there's photovoltaic, solar electric, to run the electric stuff. Um, Composting toilets, which just make going to the bathroom a really interesting experience (laughs) um, in a way that, that, that is just so cool. But tell us about the water. How does... How, it's self-cleaning the water. How does how does the water work? Oh, it's very. In this case, it's very simple. Um, all that they did was they. Um, first of all, any water comes just from a well, so it's not. So it's okay that way. You know, it just comes out of a well. Like a lot of people have wells, and then um, and then there's a drain field. So they thought about using um, a collection system from the roof, but that just gave. Um, to, that would have resulted in too many problems, so um, or uncertainties, and so um, so that water is we don't use very much water because we don't have many appliances that you know we don't have a washing machine and that sort of thing, and also because we don't you don't flush toilets, so it's just a composting toilet. There's very little water use. And what happens to the um, composting toilet once once? It starts to fill up. What do you do with the compost? I just put it on the or- fruit orchard. So remember, you should your listeners should know that the compost that comes out of a composting toilet is about five years old. So the com- the the uh, material that comes into the toilets is in is kind of comes in layers, and you pull out the bottom layer, and then. Um, the middle layer drops down and the upper layer drops down to the middle and then you fill it up some more. And by the time you do that, that you're pulling out the bottom layer, that's about five years. Paul, what's, how, how involved are Smith students, science students, biology students, in the field station? Is it still uh, a functional uh, learning environment? For oh, yeah. Students? Oh, yeah. So um, I hire students every year uh, during the school year and during the summer. So they're involved, the students have been involved all along. Some, there was a engineering class that designed the lighting for the, um, living building. Um, and that is, they designed all the windows and where those windows were placed and things. So you really don't even have to turn on the lights most days. Um, and then they've, they continue to, They've uh, designed most of the trails out there, and then they've built all the trails, and then they maintain all those trails. I have a woodshed for a campfire circle, and they've built that. Just, um, I was just working with two students. We moved um, an electric fence um, yesterday afternoon, and they helped me do that. I try to – it's the only help I have, really, except for some facilities help, and um, – it, it's just a good way to teach people different skills. And are there research projects going on by students 
at the field station? Um, most of the projects are being run by faculty research. These are science projects being run by faculty, um, and they in- use incorporate students into those projects. So there aren't any students that are actually conducting um, their own research project, but they're participating um, in faculty. In faculty stuff that's yeah. going on at the, at the yeah. field station. Buzz started off the show with talking about the hottest year on record of this is going down to possibly be the hottest year on record. Um, are Smith students concerned about climate change? Do you see a real uh, interest in environmental issues with Smith students? Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, and the college over the past four or five years has tried really hard to incorporate all aspects of climate change into its curriculum. And by that, I mean, um, there's, of course, the science aspect. The science aspect of climate change has been around, in, and it's been around since the 80s. I mean, here's what's happening. We have... We have um, um, Heat trapping carbon pollution, that's the CO2 part, that's been around. But what's, what's also being incorporated is how climate change is going to affect migrations of people, um, how um, there's a sociology aspect, depression, um, there's climate anxiety, which is a known, it's a named anxi- anxiousness. Um, that's me. I am climate anxious. Yeah. And, and, but, and that's fine to be a little bit anxious, but it doesn't, shouldn't keep you from like, um, thinking of different ways to solve the problem. And, um, and so there's, there's also just, just other aspects of, you know, in terms of design of buildings, all, any place that you can put literature, movies, anything that you can, um, you can, uh, incorporate climate change and what people are thinking about it and what people are doing about it, it's been incorporated into the curriculum in a big way. Professor Emeritus Brian Adams, you taught science for a very long time at Greenfield Community College. I'm wondering about getting students out in the field, out where they're actually touching nature rather than just being buried in books reading about science. Uh, How much does that add to their education? Oh, I think that is, it's just a tremendous aspect of connecting people with nature. If you're locked up with your, you know, with your phone <laughs> indoors all the time, you, I, I don't think you develop a sense of, of place and sense of connectedness and a sense of, of, of the natural world. You've got to get out there, and that's what makes this McLeish Field Station so wonderful. It's that's this, our mantra, yeah, experiential student, learning. Ex- I just had, last weekend, I had a first-year seminar on the classics. It was, it's on the food in the classics, classic literature, and um, they they picked chestnuts, and then they roasted them over the campfire, and then they ate them. Wow! That was what they did for. They came out and oh, that's yeah. just that's so interesting. We've been yeah. talking with Paul Wetzel. He's the manager of the McLeish Field Station, run by Smith College in Waitley. It is open to the public. The trails, at least, um, it's a beautiful or will be a beautiful time. The trees are just popping now. Uh, Paul, how could people get there if they wanted to walk the trails? What's what's the way to do that? Um, well, uh, it's just located at the end of Poplar Hill Road. Um, you have to... Um, is there a website? The, there is... N- <laughs> there is a way... I mean, McLeish is on the Smith website, yes. 
is are there directions? No, but it's at the end of Poplar Hill Road. There's, I mean, and then there's a little parking area, and um, there's a map on the kiosk. The trails are very well marked. Uh, it's open from dawn until dusk, uh, and it's just a beautiful drive to yeah. get there. Um, Buzz, you're going to go and give us the feedback. I, uh, I am going to go. Yeah, I'm going yeah, to uh, go home and say it's it's a must see for us, and I'll use my GPS to find Poplar <laughs> Hill <exactly>. Road. <laughs> Paul, I'm so appreciative of the work that you do in getting students out into into the field of managing this living building and the interesting work with American chestnut trees, which I just find so fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Brian Adams. We will be right back, and we will talk with Glenn Siegel. the talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Maura Healey has signed a tax relief package that is designed to deliver $561 million in reductions to taxpayers and companies during the current fiscal year through a slew of credits and other measures. But the one thing that we know the most direct thing that government can do is to show that we get it, to show that we get it. And how do you show by you get it? By actually putting money back in people's pockets, to take some of that pain away, to cut taxes, and to deliver. The package will top $1 billion in tax relief by the 2027 fiscal year when fully phased in. The governor said she's thrilled to deliver on a promise to pass tax relief. Authorities say the baby of a pregnant woman who was shot in Holyoke following a fight on a downtown street was delivered at a hospital and died. The Hampton District Attorney's Office says the woman, who was not involved in the fight, was shot Wednesday while seated on a bus and taken to a hospital in critical condition. Her baby was delivered in need of emergency treatment but did not survive. Authorities say police responded to the shooting at 12.38 p.m. and believe three males were involved in the altercation. Former Amherst Superintendent Michael Morris is now working for the Westfield Public School Systems. Morris is the new Director of Human Resources and began this week. Morris left the Amherst School District after 23 years amid a Title IX investigation and multiple lawsuits. Partly to mostly sunny skies today with a high of 76 to 80. Clouds will increase tonight. Evening temperatures in the 60s, overnight lows of 52 to 58. Mostly cloudy on Friday with some showers and drizzle around, a high of 68 to 72, a steadier rain on Saturday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. Serving part-time in the Army National Guard has led to a lot of firsts for me. The education assistance I received made it possible for me to be the first person in my family to go to school and graduate debt-free. That education helped get me to the first day at my dream job, a job that I can still hold while I serve part-time. 
That job, plus the other benefits possible from the Army National Guard, helped me become a first-time homeowner. Also, part of my role as a National Guard soldier means I know that I can be one of the first to respond and help my community if disaster ever strikes. I'm extremely proud that I get to serve my community. And that first step I took by joining the Army National Guard has made all the difference in my life. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com to find out what firsts are available to you in the Army National Guard. Sponsored by the Massachusetts Army National Guard. Aired by the Massachusetts Broadcasters Association at this station. AA made all the difference in my life. I noticed that most of the goals I had as a kid were slipping by. I didn't feel like the person I hoped to be. After all those years of drinking, I, I really didn't know myself. When I was out there drinking, I was always looking for the next great party to make me feel all right. With AA, I found a better way of life. And I feel good in my everyday life, even without a drink in my hand. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. The beautiful tone of Take Five leads us to all that jazz that we get brought by Glenn Siegel. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Buzz. And uh, our guest today is uh, violist and composer Matt Maneri, born in Brooklyn in 1969. Matt Maneri has established an international reputation as one of the most original and compelling artists of his generation. He performs with his quartet on Sunday, uh, October 15th at the Community Music School in Springfield. Matt Maneri, welcome to WHMP. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So uh, you began studying the violin at age five, but you made the viola your primary instrument over the last 20 years or so. Tell us what prompted the switch. Well, yeah, I grew up playing classical violin mostly, uh, and then I did learn some viola in string quartets. Uh, I studied under Robert Koff, who was the founding member of the Juilliard String Quartet, and uh, he would have us play the first violin part, the second violin part, the viola part, so we really knew the piece inside and out. <clears throat> but I was, uh, you know, I was just always trained as a violinist. And then um, I was at the ECM. I, I, I liked the lower tones. I, I remember getting an electric violin with a fifth string so it could go down to a viola level uh, pitch. Um, and I was always fascinated with it. But uh, it wasn't until uh, we were doing this uh, ECM festival in uh, somewhere in Germany. And uh, one of the people that worked for Manfred was a violist, Tina Pelican, and she was trying out a viola to try. And she said, could you try it in the, in the hall? And I want to hear it, you know, from the back rows. And as soon as I started playing it, I, I fell in love. I'm like, I got to get a viola. And, and that was like 1999. And I got a viola right after that. And I've been playing it ever since. Hi, this is Bill Newman. I'd like to ask you a really stupid question. So apologies in advance. What's the difference in the tuning of a, of those two instruments? Thank and, you for and, that stupid question. And, 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 and if you can play one, can you play the other? Yeah, you can, but it, you know, it's it's a viola's a bigger, and so you 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 your fingers have to stretch more to reach certain intervals. It's a little more clumsy. It doesn't project like a violin. Um, but the the basic difference in the violin and the viola is it's a fifth lower, 
So on the violin strings, you have E, A, D, G, G being the lowest. On the viola, you start with A, and then you go down to D, G, and then a low C. So that's the basic difference. Mm-hmm. Which sounds a lot, E, A, D, G. That, I mean, that's the beginning. Those are, that's, that's a guitar. Yeah, but I'm, I'm going from top note down, so it's in fifths. Oh, I see. Sorry, okay. so it's the highest string. Mm-hmm. Got you. So, Matt, your father was the composer and saxophone innovator Joe Maneri, who was on faculty at the New England Conservatory of Music for many years. Uh, and I had the honor of presenting you and your dad in concert at UMass in 2004. Um, you had all kinds of musicians coming through your house uh, as a kid. What was it like to grow up in such a rich musical environment? Well, at the time, I didn't, uh, I mean, I must have taken it for granted because it was, that was my life growing up, you know. People like Rand Blake would come by or, you know, uh, Marty Ehrlich or whoever, you know, just would show up and start jamming and playing. And we had soirees that my father and mother would present in different neighborhoods to bring all his students out to play a wealth of different kinds of music from jazz to contemporary to, you know, Baroque, everything, uh, to folk, to rock. Um, So I, I just grew up around music. Weirdly enough, we had a record player. We only had two records, you know. So I didn't grow up like with the normal stuff most kids might have my age might have grown up, like listening to the Beatles or whatever. Uh, I just kind of knew the music as a live expression. Uh, and now looking back on it, I really uh, am so grateful that that was part of my life, and it really shaped me. Mm, beautiful. Um, your father was a pioneer of microtonal composing and playing. Explain what microtones are and how you incorporate them into your music. Well, microtones are the notes in between the notes. So if you imagine a piano in front of you and you have these keys, what are the notes in between the keys? There's an infinite number of notes between keys. Then you have to determine what kind of notes you want to use. My father ended up using a system. uh, In in Western music, we have a 12-tone, 12-equal-tempered system. He ended up using a 72-note scale, so we had 72 notes instead of 12. Uh, so these notes between the notes, they're really common in, in, in so many different parts of the world. If you listen to uh, you know, Greek music or Arabic music, or all kinds of music have these different kind of notes between the notes. In jazz, people like Lester Young sliding into the note, or Billie Holiday, the way she hits the note on a specific pitch a little bit off and gives it a little more tension. So as an improviser, I use it very much like uh, the way maybe a blues a musician might use it, or I like to create a little extra tension, maybe by uh, raising the third or just kind of playing those kind of blue notes that kind of evoke kind of some spiritualness. Um, but when I'm writing that kind of music, I, I, I kind of take a more academic route, and it's a kind of a two-tiered uh, problem with me. But I really enjoy playing the microtones. Uh, right now I've been working a lot with um, Lucian Bond, and we've been doing uh, uh, Romanian folk songs that were transcribed by Bartok. And uh, so many of those uh, transcriptions had these little markings because, you know, the way they were singing had these different inflections that had their own tonality, and I've been really enjoying that very much as well. Uh, Matt Maneri, Bill Newman again. Uh, And again, uh, excuse my ignorance, but I remember being at a poetry reading by Robert Bly in college years and years ago. And he said, 
we Western people are so utterly backwards when it comes to music. And what we are used to is half notes. We have uh, notes, and then we have sharps. We have notes. We have flats. They're half tones. Here's how native people in this country would chant. And he would do it, he said, because you can have quarter tones, you can have eighth tones, and this is what it sounds like. And it just blew my mind that there, first the concept and then the execution. And I'd appreciate if you could tell us more about that. Well, the execution is like anything else when you're learning an instrument or singing. Uh, you have to like practice, practice, practice these kind of pitches until you become comfortable with them. Uh, what many people don't know is like violinists naturally already change our fingerings very slightly to sound in tune in the equal tempered scale. So like we'll play a uh, double stop, like a fifth. And then if we play a sixth, we immediately adjust the first finger down a little bit lower so it sounds equal tempered. So when a violinist says, oh, that's too many notes, I can't even do it. I said, you're already doing it based on where you think the pitch should be. Uh, so it's a matter of practice. And I love playing just different intervals, playing a whole step and then playing a whole step a 12th high playing a whole step, a sixth high, playing a whole step, a quarter tone, and, and just kind of getting these different kind of relationships between the two notes is very exciting, and I think it just adds so much to all our music. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's a shame that we don't use it more in the Western world, uh, but all around the world, people use it all the time in many, many different forms. But I, I think you were saying earlier, this is Buzz, that it could be notated, that is, it could be written so that people can yes, understand. Yes, absolutely. What There's all... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's, that's my question. Can it be notated? Yes, and there's different notations. People come up with different systems. Uh, my father, like I said, using the 72-note system, had a whole bunch of symbols that uh, were, were created, actually, by a composer, Ezra Sims, who was a wonderful microtonal composer. Uh, so he ended up using that, but there's many different notation ways to, to go about it. Everybody has their own kind of niche on how to do it, but... Uh, I find the uh, one that Ezra Sims came up very clear and easy to read. Uh, Matt, um, I wanted to ask you about Baroque music, which, you, as you mentioned, you studied with uh, Juilliard String Quartet co-founder Robert Koff. Um, your work as an improviser remains deeply informed by classical music. How do you think about the confluence of jazz and classical forms in your music? Well... I mean, it's, that's a complicated topic, but as far as like Baroque and jazz, I think there's a lot of similarities. In Baroque music, originally, there would be passages where you would improvise. There would be uh, much less vibrato and much more kind of pure tonal sounds uh, that really allowed this kind of uh, more kind of jazz sound to it, I think. Um, but as far as classical music and jazz, they're connected so many ways, like different harmonies that came out of the 20th century. Classical music musicians were using them. Jazz were, musicians were naturally using them. You know, the sharp this and the flat that and blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's a lot of similarities, but when you go even further into uh, where I kind of improvise in a more almost free form, but still use music, um, there's a lot of, uh, I try to use all kinds of music to inform what I'm, I'm playing without kind of mimicking it but kind of absorbing what I've learned in classical music, what I've absorbed in uh, North Indian classical music, what I've absorbed in West African music, and all these kind of things that I've been hearing all my life and playing with. 
I try to absorb it and then just kind of my, find my natural way to interpret it and play in a more free manner. If that makes any sense at all. I it makes no a idea. lot of sense. So uh, before we take a break, remind us one more time where Matt's going to be playing and when. Yes, uh, Sunday, October 15th at 7.30 p.m. at the Community Music School of Springfield, right downtown, 127 State Street. Um, you can get uh, tickets and more information about the show uh, at jazzshares.org. It's being sponsored by Pioneer Valley Jazz Shares, which I'm involved in. You sure are, and this is a quartet. Yes, it's a quartet with Lucien Bond, who whom, uh, Matt mentioned, and uh, Randy Peterson, a great drummer, and we'll talk about both of them uh, in the next segment, as well as uh, bassist Brandon Lopez. Can't wait to hear more about it. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Tag your it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. <laughs> Tom Hartman Program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. <laughs> What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, committed to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat and leading the community to end hunger. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. And we are back with Glenn Siegel, who's brought us a, a really just a fantastic guest, Matt Maneri, who will be playing with his quartet in Springfield at the uh, Community Music School. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And that's going to be on the 15th of October from 7.30 to 9.30. Yes, exactly. And uh, it will include pianist Lucien Bond, drummer Randy Peterson, and bassist Brandon Lopez. Um, Matt, you've had a long relationship with both uh, Lucien Bond and Randy Peterson. Tell us a little bit about both of them, and uh, then we'll get to Brandon Lopez. Absolutely. Well, with Randy, he's probably the longest collaborator I've ever had. Um, we met in the 80s, um, and... 
a friend of mine, Stephen Lantner, wonderful keyboarder, said, you got to check this guy out, Randy Peterson. He's, you know, really great. So I had him over and, you know, Randy was coming out of like a real bebop thing at that time. You know, he was just so great at it, but, uh, you know, wasn't really a free player like he's known for now, but he just taught me so much about the bebop language and things. And we used to, once we got it really going, we, we used to rehearse like three or four days a week, like 12 hours a day and just try out ideas and experiment and play it this way and play it that way and try it the wrong way. And, uh, and he really is part of who I am as a musician, as an improviser. We kind of developed this style very much together. And then when we added my father, uh, Joe Maneri, and then became a quartet, it was just kind of like that was the unit that, you know, it was just fantastic time period in my life. I met Lucian uh, probably about 12, 13 years ago. And that was kind of a fluke. He was doing this big piece, uh, uh, kind of reinterpreting uh, Georgia Onesco's music, uh, great Romanian composer. And he had uh, two horns and he wanted two string players and uh, Bedal Roy was on tabla. And, uh, Gerald Cleaver was on track. It was a great band. Uh, John A. Bear on bass. But uh, the cellist couldn't make it suddenly, like last minute. And someone record, they couldn't find a cellist, so someone recommended me on viola. I could kind of play the cello parts. So that's kind of like last minute. I just ended up working with him. So we're, we're rehearsing right before the concert in Romanian, Bucharest. Uh, and there was one part of the piece that just said, uh, viola piano duet open before this this tune so we get to the concert we had never really played like that before we didn't even do it in rehearsals because we didn't have time and we just did this duet and both of us simultaneously kind of said wow there's something there between us you can't describe it sometimes you know it's just that kind of magic something that we both understood each other in a certain way and ever since we've been performing pretty much non-stop since then it's been a great relationship both with randy and lucian Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I know on your recent records, Johnny Bear has been playing bass, but you have uh, Brandon Lopez playing uh, on this tour, including in Springfield. How'd you meet him? I met him, I must have seen him play in the city at some points here and there. He was, he's been like an up-and-comer, and he's just really dazzling improviser. Uh, so I saw him play and had him over with jammed and stuff. And unfortunately, John A. Bear couldn't make this tour. Um, he also broke his arm, but he's recovering from that. I think he could play again, but um, but he couldn't make this tour, unfortunately. So uh, we tried Brandon, and uh, he fit right in, and it's been great, and he'll be on the road with us. Yeah, so um, he's a wonderful young bass player who's just got a real exceptional improvisational skill. Like, he just, you know, has such ideas that I'm, I'm very happy to have him with us. Yeah, Matt Maneri, can I just circle back to what you were talking about? When you're with somebody for that many years, and even when you both are encountering something completely new, you're on the same page. I just want to know what that feels like. I mean, are you really aware of it as it's happening that, oh my goodness, he knows exactly what I'm about to do because we are just so much on the page? Or, or is it something you reflect about after you're through playing? No, I think it happens as we're playing. Yeah, sometimes that magic's there. It's like, and you just know. It's like, you know, when a basketball player is like really in the zone and they just can't miss a shot or know exactly when to pass to their colleague who knows exactly where to pick it up because they're in the zone. It's it's very much that kind of feeling. Mm, beautiful. 
Um, you produced a record called Dust in 2019, and now you're celebrating the release of Ash, your second album in a trilogy. Uh, do you have plans for the third album, and what will it be called? It's going to be called Mist. Um, and yeah, it's definitely a trilogy. I've been thinking about it. When we did the first record, I knew I wanted to explore some different facets of what the Dust and Ash thing were about, and I knew right away it was going to be the third one was going to be Mist. I've already started writing some music for it, uh, so but uh, we're going to finish promoting this record first and then try to get into the studio with some new, new, new stuff to do the third record. But uh, yeah, it's a nice concept, uh, kind of exploring these un intangible qualities, and, and a lot of it has to do with memory, a lot of it has to do with like distorted memory, and I, I thought Dust and the way Ash you know, play with the, the illusion of things and also Mist really captures that. Beautiful. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left, um, but I just wanted to circle back about uh, the Joe Maneri Quartet that uh, you really co-founded with your father um, and really widely acknowledged by critics and fellow musicians as among the most important developments in 20th century improvised music. What prompted you to uh, form that group with your father? Well, like I said, um, you know, Randy and I were really working hard with these different ideas, playing together, improvising, uh, and it became such a thing. And then I, you know, always knew what a great improviser my father was, but he hadn't been really doing it, performing out live, you know, maybe once in a while at like the, a student concert show at the New England Conservatory. But one day we were just rehearsing down there in the basement of his house, actually. And um, I said, why don't we just call my father down? You know, have him play with us, see what happens. And almost immediately, like, it just clicked. And then we added uh, John Lockwood on bass. And then we've had different bass players over a few years. But mm -hmm. it was just one of those, another magical moment. As soon as my father joined Randy and me, he's like, oh, we got something here. Yeah, yeah, you did have something there. And the world is better off for it. it, it we've been speaking... Thanks to Glenn Siegel, the Jazz Share Conceiver. We've been speaking with Matt Maneri of the Matt Maneri Quartet. They will be playing on Sunday, October 15th at the Community Music School of Springfield from 7.30 to 9.30. Jazz Share, you can get your tickets. You can show mm -hmm. up also at the Community Music School of Springfield and get a ticket, and you're in for a huge treat by hearing the quartet. Quartet, quartet thank you quartet. so much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz when I was Eisenberg a kid, a on WHMP. Unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh Fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting. And bon appetit. WHMP North.